It is 12 o'clock, so with no further ado, I shall, um, shall commence our, um, our journey. So hopefully you can all see uh, my screen. Welcome, basically. Welcome to Alexander Lloyd's Employment Law, Employment Law Update webinar for June 2021. This is our third in a series of webinars planned for this year and our second in partnership with Andrew Norpel from Synchrony Law. Hello, Andrew. Hello, hello. Great to have you on board. Thanks again for, um, for chairing today, really. Um, I mean, today we plan to cover a bit of a general update on employment law. Andrew will talk about the most, in his view, the most important cases for HR practitioners so far in 2021. And we're also going to provide a bit of a short update on any legal changes as we start to exit lockdown, hopefully in July. Uh, I appreciate those goalposts keep moving. Um, as always, we're going to invite questions via the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. So if there are any natural breaks, I'll, I'll pose some questions to Andrew then. If not, obviously, we have the end of the webinar where we'll have some time for questions. Um, but we anticipate that the whole kit and caboodle should last an hour. So um, hopefully that suits all of you. Um, the quick plug for us, hopefully you all know me by now. I'm Simon Gear from Alexander Lloyd. Here are the team. You've got myself, Damien Barnett, Theo Saunders and Danielle Rahl. We find HR people work in London, Surrey, Sussex and Kent. That's the very, very high level view. All shapes and size businesses. Um, I, th I think some of the people in the room today, um, virtually we, we've helped in the past and uh, look forward to continue doing so. But um, any questions about us, obviously grab me at any time. And lastly, we are indeed the creators of the Talk HR UK podcast. It's a free to watch or listen to podcast that is made by HR professionals and obviously aimed at HR professionals. Um, again, possibly some of the guests in the room today uh, have been guests on the podcast where we talk through a really, really wide range of HR topics. Um, ones that we've got in the pipeline still to come. We've got some more around employee experience. Uh, definitely some about corporate social responsibility and sustainability as an employer, also vision and uh, vision and value statements. So there's, there's quite a few we've got in the pipeline still to come out over the next month, all available to listen to on Apple or Spotify or Google Podcasts or to watch on our YouTube channel. But that is the end of me and my bit. And I guess I'd like to pass over to Andrew and uh, hope you all enjoy today's Enjoy today's session. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. Um, well, it's uh, great, great to be, be back with another uh, another webinar uh, in, in conjunction with Alexander Lloyd. Um, now, it, wouldn't it have been great if those COVID restrictions had been relaxed on the 21st of June? But as we know, um, because of that substantial increase in cases of the Delta variant, unfortunately, the further relaxation isn't going to take place now until the 19th of July at the earliest. Um, that said, tribunal cases and court cases have kept on coming throughout the whole of the period of uh, lockdown and continue to do so. And for the most part today, what I'm going to be concentrating on is that case law. I'm going to be looking at what I consider to be some of the most important cases for HR practitioners so far this year. There are some very important cases, in fact, that I'm not going to be covering. Um, that includes ones relating to employment status, but that's only because they were dealt with in an, another recent Alexander Lloyd webinar. Um, I'm also not going to be dealing with payment of the national minimum wage during sleep-ins because, although again very important, it only relates to a, a minority of employers. Um, other cases I'm deliberately not covering today relate to those dealing with rather technical issues, albeit important, such as maternity payments, equal value, equal pay claims, and industrial action. And many of you may know that only last week there was a very important judgment that a gender critical belief can still be a protected philosophical belief, um, where many people actually you know, do, do, do have that belief. Uh, but I'm not covering those today. What I am going to be looking at is cases that really affect you on a day to day basis. So things like uh, disciplinary investigations, equal opportunities training, uh, the effect of TUPI on splitting contracts and also COVID-related uh, dismissal. Um, so on with the show. I'm going to hopefully now uh, share my screen. And hopefully now you all have uh, access to my slides. 
So what we're looking at here is uh, a, a, a case law update, and I'm going to go straight in and start off with interrelated investigations and employee surveillance. This is a case that came out at uh, the beginning of uh, this year and involves a situation where a number of people were being investigated for misconduct at the same time. And in particular, we're looking at Mr. Anderson, who was being uh, investigated at the same time as two other employees. Now, he was dismissed for gross misconduct and with a smallish uh, company, as you can imagine, you're going to run out of people to investigate, hear the dis disciplinary hearing and deal with any appeal. So what they did um, is they got three HR consultants in to investigate here um, and chair the disciplinary hearings and deal with any appeals. And um, these HR consultants got on with all the dis uh, got on with all with, with, with everything, and in the end, uh, Mr. Anderson was dismissed for gross misconduct, as were the other two, and he went and brought a tribunal claim. And in the first instance, at tribunal, he succeeded on all grounds. Now, one of the uh, grounds that he succeeded in was where the tribunal decided that it was a, fate, a fatal flaw that a particular HR consultant who heard his disciplinary hearing actually had relevant knowledge from their role as an investigator in another person's investigation. Now, usually speaking, you try and keep things separate. One person is the investigator, another person is the disciplinary uh, hearing officer. However, you know, you can run out of, you know, run out of people. And sometimes actually information that is dealt with in one investigation is relevant to another investigation and to another decision. And, you know, should it be, you know, uh, wrong to be able to, you know, use that evidence that you've come up with in that other investigation. Well, the tribunal here said, absolutely, it's completely wrong. That individual should never have heard the disciplinary hearing because they were involved as an investigator in the other matter. And also they should have never have used any information that had cropped up in a different investigation. They also said that it was unfair. So that was a procedural unfairness. They also said that it was substantively unfair because uh, one of the things that they dismissed him for was because he had set up covert surveillance in his own office to check whether anyone was entering into his room to access his computer. Now, you can see he was obviously concerned that someone might do that. But it was decided that because he had done that and other people could have been caught on camera without uh, their, their knowledge, um, in those circumstances, that was gross misconduct. Anyway, the company appealed uh, in this case, and they did allow the appeal uh, in, in part. What they did was they, the EAT, they, they looked at the ACAS code and they said, yep, absolutely, it says where practicable, different people should conduct the investigation and the disciplinary hearing. However, focus on that word practicable. It's not practical, it's not reasonable to have different teams of HR consultants dealing with the separate allegations. You know, that's, that, that would have been, what, nine separate individuals dealing with three sets of, um, you know, three sets of uh, misconduct. And whereas the HR consultant community would be very happy with that, would it be fair on the company to have to pay out to all these independent individuals to, uh, you know, for them to take part? What the EAT also said is there is no need to have the investigation sealed off from each other. In other words, if something crops up in one investigation, there is absolutely no reason why it shouldn't be used in another person's case. You can't just close your mind to it and pretend it doesn't exist. And they said it's actually in the interest of accuracy and coherence for statements from one witness to be used in multiple sets of proceedings where relevant. And in this particular case, not only had the tribunal criticised the, the employer's use of uh, one witness's evidence in another, in, in Mr. Anderson's um, disciplinary proceedings, it actually refused to hear that evidence 
in the tribunal. And what happened is the EAT specifically said, no, 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 no. This goes back to the tribunal in, in relation to this particular issue. And you must consider that witness's evidence. It is relevant. However, in relation to um, the surveillance, they did uphold the fact that it was unfair to dismiss for that reason. They said that there was a fractured relationship between the individual, Mr. Anderson, and the company. It had created a lack of trust there. Mr. Anderson was particularly concerned about people going into his computer and accessing stuff that was on there relating to personal information that he um, that was there. He was quite a senior individual and he had been using his computer for, for personal uh, reasons. Uh, and there wasn't anything that, uh, that was wrong in, in that regard. Now, normally speaking, we have a situation where the employer is doing the one, is the one doing the monitoring, rather than the individual doing the one, you know, doing the recording, doing the monitoring. But the EAT said, you, you, you follow exactly the same rules here as to whether it, it would be fair for a company to monitor. You need to balance the, an individual's right against, uh, of privacy against the Mon the person monitoring's desires, their, their needs. And in this case, it was Mr. Anderson's desire to protect his personal information. And in this particular case, what should have happened is the tribunal should have attached weight to the fact that Mr. Anderson had only set up surveillance in his own office. It was only focused on his computer. And in fact, there wasn't uh, no one actually was captured by that surveillance. It didn't actually show anyone. So Mr. Anson was obviously happy there. No one was accessing his computer, but he wasn't particularly happy to be dismissed for having set up that, um, that, that monitoring. There's a, a question here as well is if, if a tribunal, sorry, if an employer really does uh, consider that uh, monitoring or surveillance in any shape or form on the part of an employee is something that sh they should not be doing. Should it be included as an example of gross misconduct in a disciplinary policy? Um, that actually cropped up in another case, I think last year, when an individual was recording meetings on their personal mobile phone. And again, a question arose there. Should you include, now include that, recordings, covert recordings by an individual as an example of gross misconduct in a disciplinary policy. We all know that examples of gross misconduct aren't exhaustive, provided you put that statement into your policy, but might you want to put it there in any event? Something, something to think about uh, going forward. On to the next case that I want to deal with today, and this is all about equal opportunities. Now, you may be aware that an employer will be liable for the actions of their employees where those employees have um, committed acts of discrimination. And most tribunal claims are brought against the employer. However, do remember that claims related to discrimination can be brought against the individual discriminators as well. So, you know, clearly there's, you know, and, and awards can be made against those individual discriminators, not normally injury to feelings awards. So, you know, for the sake of both you and the individuals, we all you know, would you know, hope and wish that no discrimination takes place in the workplace. And therefore, what we do is we put in place equal opportunities training in order to try and prevent that from happening. Now, sometimes the employee will commit an act of discrimination. And there is actually a defence for the employer in the Equality Act, which states that if the employer took all reasonable steps to prevent the harassment from happening, then they can free themselves from that liability. If, they, if you, as an employer, were going to try and rely on that, um, that argument, then the in then uh, you'd have to have different legal representation between you and the individual because there'd clearly be a conflict of interest. Um, 
but in fact, I, I have only ever acted on one case where I was acting for the employer, and we actually raised that that defence because the acts of discrimination were so horrendous um, that we didn't want to have anything to do with them. Fortunately, we were able to prove that they didn't in fact happen, um, but we, we just simply didn't want to be associated with with them. In this case, however, the employer had already found out through their own internal investigation that the acts of discrimination had happened. What you had is you had Mr. Galen, who was uh, he identified as being of Indian origin, and he complained after he was dismissed that he had been racially harassed by a particular individual during his employment. And as you can see there, his employment only lasted for less than a year, from October 2016 to September 2017. Now, the employer carried out an investigation and they found that um, the, uh, the individual uh, P, Mr. Pearson, had indeed made racist comments. Now, Mr. Pearson just called, called it racial banter. Now, let me give you an idea of what he said. He said things like, uh, he said, Mr. Galen uh, should go and work in a corner shop. He had brown skin. He drove a Mercedes car like all other Indians. And he was also asked, why was he in the country in the first place? Now, clearly those are acts of uh, racial harassment. Um, Mr. Pearson, however, he didn't think it was anything more than racial banter. Now, at the tribunal hearing, they unsurprisingly said, yes, Mr. Galen had suffered harassment, but they said that the company could not rely on the defence that it was trying to raise. Because Mr. Pearson had regularly made racial comments. One of Mr. Pearson's colleagues and two other managers were aware of these comments, but took no action at all other than mildly rebuking Mr. Pearson. The company did have an equal opportunities policy and also an anti-bullying and harassment uh, procedure. And Mr. Pearson, the colleague and the managers that pretty much did nothing, had all had training on that policy back in January and February 2015. So at the moment you're thinking, well, hang on a sec, surely they've had training. Why isn't that success working? Why isn't that defence working? Well, that's because the tribunal decided that the training was stale. It should have been refreshed. If the company, in order to rely upon the defence, needs to show that it took all reasonable steps to prevent the conduct, then a reasonable step would have been to have refreshed the training. The fact that this harassment took place in the, you know, in the first place is indicative of the fact that even though Mr Pearson had had the training, he still made the comments. Even though the, the other individuals had had the training, they didn't report the comments to management. And the tribunal specifically said as well that the policies and training do not appear to have been very impressive, even for a relatively small employer. So they didn't allow the ET didn't allow the tribunal to rely, uh, sorry, the, the tribunal didn't allow the employer to rely upon the defence. And they said, no, you are liable for Mr. Pearson's discrimination. The company wasn't happy about this and it appealed. And the Employment Appeal Tribunal said, when considering whether any steps were reasonable, you need to consider the likelihood of those steps being effective in preventing discrimination. You also need to consider the cost and the practicality. They went on to say that the tribunal had sufficient information to conclude that the past training was no longer effective, pretty obvious because Mr. Pearson made the comments, his colleagues didn't report it. And there was nothing to indicate, however, that refresher training would not have been effective. And one of the things that particularly caught the, tribe, the, uh, the employer out here was the fact that immediately after the investigation, they provided Mr. Pearson with further training. 
So why on earth would they have done that if they didn't think it would have worked? Now, to be honest, that's what employers always do. After something like this happens, where you realize that the training hasn't worked, you go and give refresher training because clearly your previous training doesn't work anymore. But I think it's going to be harder and harder to show if you do do that training afterwards to show, well, you took all reasonable steps beforehand. And the EAT said brief and superficial training, as had happened originally here, is unlikely to have a substantial effect in preventing harassment, nor will it have long lasting consequences. In other words here, what they're saying is get it right first time. Decent training, refreshed annually, we would suggest, to make sure that everyone understands what amounts to harassment, what amounts to bullying, and to try and avoid the discrimination, the harassment in the first place. And if it ever happened, a bride product would hopefully be that the employer could then rely upon the defence as well. What I'm going to look now at is a contract, um, sorry, it's a case relating to Chupi. And although the, the case that I'm going to look at uh, did happen within uh, the last six months, I need to take you back to one of the first cases uh, that happened in lockdown last year, uh, which set, the, uh, set out the basis for why the decision happened uh, earlier this year. It was a case in the European Court of Justice. And you're thinking, hang on a sec, we're not in the EU anymore. Why is that relevant? Well, where the ECJ made decisions, gave judgments before the end of December last year, before the end of the transition period, its case law will be binding upon the, uh, uh, the, the UK and upon the, uh, the tribunals and the courts in the UK. So therefore, this case is still very much relevant. Now, in this in this uh, European case, what happened was that um, the company was responsible for cleaning the cleaning and maintenance of buildings in Ghent, in the Netherlands. And Mr. Govertz was a project manager for all of the buildings. He oversaw everything for the whole for the whole contract. What the um, what ISS decided to do here, though, was to have a tender process in which it divided up all the buildings into three separate lots. And it, it awarded two lots to one uh, organization, A, and one lot to another organization, C. And Ms. Govertz was told, you are going to transfer to company A. And the reason for this is, well, they had two lots compared to one lot. So clearly she carried out more of her work for the part of the contract that was transferring over to company A. However, A wasn't happy with this. Company A wasn't happy with this and said no, and uh, didn't allow her to be employed by them. So Ms. Govertz brought claims against both the out, her outgoing employer, ISS, and also company A. Now, ISS said, look, 85% of the work that you did is transferring to company A, and only 15% to, uh, to company C. Therefore, that's why we believe that you should transfer to company A. Now, the Higher Labour Court in that country agreed that under their version of CHUPI, implementing the Acquired Rights Directive, that the contract did transfer. However, they didn't know what to do in this particular circumstance where part of a contract was transferring to, um, to one employer and part of a contract was transferring to another employer. How can you transfer to two separate employers? Can that work? Can that be the case? And so they made a, a reference to the European Court of Justice, which said that someone in Ms. Govert's position should transfer to each transferee pro rata. 
equivalent to the extent that they were working before the transfer took place. And that's on the basis that the Acquired Rights Directive, on which in our country TUPE is based, is intended to safeguard the rights of employees. And therefore, if they can work for two separate employers, hey, why not? But also, if, it, wouldn't it be really unfair, in the case of multiple transferees, for one transferee to take on the employee full time, where they weren't spending uh, the, all of their time pre-transfer on the part of the work that transferred to them. That just wouldn't be fair. Therefore, they said, yep, it can your employment can transfer to two employers on a transfer. But how do you do that? How, how, do you how on earth do you transfer to two separate em employers? How do you work out? Is it percentage of time, value? Well, the, the ECJ bypassed that question and said, oh, no, that's up to the national court. We've, you know, this is our judgment. We're setting you a problem. It's down to the national court to decide how to implement it. They even said that where you work only a small number of hours, the pro rata principle should still apply. So what if you work only 5%, 2% of your time? It still applies. They did, however, say that in some situations where the division of the contract is simply impossible, where it would result in the deterioration of working conditions for that employee, then the contract may be terminated. However, liability still ends up with the transferee, even if the, if the employee is saying, well, hang on a sec, I don't want to be working um, with you on these terms. Now, the ECJ here is creating a huge problem. It's basically saying, yes, where the work which you're, you're doing pre-transfer goes to more than one organisation, you transfer to both of them. And it's left to the individual court in the individual um, countries to work out how on earth uh, to deal with that. Now, interestingly, this goes completely and utterly against previous case law in the UK, the Kimberley case, that had said, in fact, they had said what, ha what happened originally in, in the Netherlands, that you should just go, what the uh, employer in the Netherlands had thought, is that the uh, organisation which takes on the majority of the work, that's the one who gets the whole of the employee, and you can't start splitting up their employment contract. The trouble is, the UK must now follow that ECJ judgment as it was decided before the end of the Brexit transition period. And that's exactly what happened in February of this year. And what happened was, rather than a cleaning contract, we had a contract which was in relation to the replacement of kitchens for Lanarkshire Council. And you had a group of 23 employees of Amy, who worked um, on this uh, on this contract, including two individuals, Mr. Daly and Mr. Lennon. Um, Mr. Daly and Mr. Lennon uh, worked across, because the nature of their role worked across the whole contract. Most individuals also worked um, across uh, the whole contract as well, in all different parts of uh, North Lanarkshire. Although they were divided into two teams who had the full range of trades necessary to fit the kitchens. Now, those teams did work independently, but in the nature of teams, they also provided cover for each other, the sickness, holidays, etc. They had individual trades. However, they were not allocated to any particular geographical area within the council. This then got very confusing when North Lanarkshire Council retended the kitchen contract but wanted to split the contract by ge geographical area, north and south. And it made a specific decision not to award both contracts to the same contractor. So McTeer got one and Mighty got another contract. And they said to Amy, right, this is what we're doing. This is um, where we've reawarded the contract. You're not getting it. McTeer, 
and uh, Mighty are getting it, and this is, uh, they're doing it a geographical area. So to start with, North Lanarkshire thought, well, hang on a sec, we don't think Tupi applies here because, hey, you've split the contract. How on earth are we going to uh, be able to, uh, you know, say certain employees go in, you know, to certain organisations? But they then retracted that. So although they'd given notice uh, of redundancy to the, to the, the staff, they then said, no, 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 we think Tupi now does actually apply. But they're then faced with the problem. Okay, so it applies, but where, do you, where are these individuals supposed to go? Do they go to McTeer or do they go to Mighty? Because they didn't work in particular geographical territories. So they looked at where um, the teams, the two teams had worked during the preceding 12 months. And they compared those results with the geographical areas allocated to the new contracts. And they came up with a spreadsheet. They looked at all the locations, they looked at all the time spent, and they said, okay, team A spent most of their time here, and McTeer, you're taking on that, so team A goes to McTeer, and um, team, um, team B, you spent most of your time working in the other geographical area, so mighty, you're getting them. Now, the trouble is with um, the two individuals, um, DNL. In this particular case, because they worked across both uh, both areas and were responsible for the whole contract, they said, "Well, it's not fair if we give both with both of you to any one particular contractor. We're going to allocate one of you to one and one of you to the other, just like that. No particular thought to it. Just one gets one, one gets the other." Well, McTeer and Mighty said. Hang on a sec, we don't think Tupi applies at all. They refuse to take on any of the claimants, and so they all brought tribunal claims. And the tribunal said, yes, we think there has been two um, service provision changes here, one to Mighty, one to Matea, and they said, in the circumstances, uh, Amy, you're not liable for anything because you haven't unfairly dismissed them because Tupi applies, except they did find them liable for a failure to consult in connection with the transfer. Because, of course, to start off with, they said, you're all redundant, then belatedly retracted that and said, no, Tupi applies. The trouble was, who do you allocate the work? Where did the staff go? And McTeer and uh, Mighty both appealed against the tribunal's judgment because they argued that Govert's applied. And Govert's hadn't been decided when the ET um, was making its decision. And the EAT said, yep, there's no reason why we shouldn't follow uh, Govert's. In fact, we need to follow it. And, I, and we know that service provision uh, changes are a particular, something special under Tupi that doesn't actually exist in the Acquired Rights Directive. But it would be very odd if Govert's applied to uh, the sale of a business under Tupi but didn't apply um, to uh, a service provision change. I should have said the transfer of an economic entity under Tupi rather than a service provision change. So they said, yes, we do need to follow uh, Govert's here. And we so see no reason why those uh, claimants can't actually transfer to both of uh, McTeer and Mighty at the same time. They could be employed part-time by one and part-time by the other. What's the problem? It makes sense to do it on geographic lines. Yeah, we could, we completely understand that. You know, the work done in one area would be for one, the work done in another area would be for the other. Yeah, that, that, that works. And so the EAT sent the case back to the tribunal to consider the application of Govert's to each claimant individually. Because of course, what the tribunal had done and they had 
followed what the um, Amy had done was they had, they had looked at the team approach, that team to one and that team to another. That's not the right way of doing it. You've got to look at every individual. Where did they carry out the majority of the work? And in this case, geographically. You can't say, oh, they were in this particular team and the team as a whole carried out their work. The majority in this particular area. I think as a result of this case, what you're going to have is you're going to have transferees who can try and use this case to minimise their post-transfer obligations because they're going to say, well, I know that we've taken on, 80, you know, let's say, 65% of the contract. However, we shouldn't get the whole of the employee just because they did 65% of their work in that area or carried out 65% of those duties. We should only get 65% of that employee and the remaining 35% should transfer to the other employer. They said that um, Chippy might not uh, apply if the work is not fundamentally the same. So there is still a potential that Chippy doesn't apply. If you could say, well, look, it's actually being dealt with completely differently after the transfer. But that's going to be a hard one to, to do where the ECJ has already said you can you know, split it up between two different employers. And as you can see, as a result of what the EAT has said, it's really important going forward um, to make an assessment in relation to each individual employee rather than making a team-based assessment as Amy did um, here. So you're literally going to have to look at what every individual did pre-transfer. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a real problem with this case. There's not much I can do about it. It's, this is the case law. But let's say an individual does go 60% to one and 60% to and 30 and you know 40% to another because of geographical regions. What do you do? Do you say, okay, it's Monday to Wednesday with one employer and Thursday and Friday with the other employer? What happens if they need to be working the whole week for both employers? Well, do they then just kind of split their hours? You know, just do an hour here for this employer, an hour there for that employer. And what happens if they're in a role which involves the bidding on contracts? They're going to, what, bid on contracts for both employers? They have the confidential information relating to both employers? How on earth does that work? Oh, well, I don't have to answer that one today, but I'm sure that we'll find out in, uh, in, uh, in cases to come how that is going to be interpreted. The trouble is, before we get those cases, there'll obviously be employers having to work out what to do and, and how to try and implement this decision. I'm going to move on now to uh, some health and safety uh, matters. Uh, I'm going to look at this uh, case here, Sinclair versus uh, Trackwork. And in this particular case, um, what happened was Mr. Sinclair was brought in and he was required to implement a new health and safety procedure. So he did exactly what was required of him and he, started, he got on with it. And he, you know, he was a health and safety specialist. He knew what he needed to, need to be doing. The trouble is his colleagues weren't happy with the changes that he was proposing and raised concerns about them. It didn't help that Trackwood hadn't explained to uh, Mr. Sinclair's colleagues exactly what he would be doing and that he had full authority to get on with it. Now, he caused real upset with his colleagues because, you know, you know what it's like when change comes about or the thought of change, you know, in whatever way it might be, procedures, processes, IT systems, people don't like change. They didn't see what the problem was with the current way that they were working. And they thought that, well, he's a health and safety body. He's being very, very overcautious and somewhat zealous in what he's doing. And as a result of that, they complained and track work dismissed Mr. Sinclair for having caused that upset and friction. Now, he'd only been there for two months, so he didn't have ordinary unfair dismissal rights. 
season, which of course you need one year and 51 weeks service for. But what he could do is he could allege that he had been automatically unfairly dismissed, where the principal reason for his dismissal was that he had carried out designated health and safety activities. So he brought that claim and the tribunal said, no, no, you'd upset the workforce due to the way in which you had carried out your health and safety activities, not because of them themselves. That being the case, that was the reason for your dismissal and you haven't been automatically unfair unfairly dismissed, we can distinguish between the way in which you carried out your duties and the fact of carrying out your duties. Well, he appealed and the EAT very recently, last month, uh, upheld his appeal. And they said, no, the legislation that we have is there to protect those who carry out health and safety activities. Health and safety activities are such an important part of the workplace, we've got to give broad protection to those that are responsible for it. And Mr Sinclair carried out his duties diligently within the terms of what he was asked to do. He was basically, unfortunately, in a situation where his colleagues were upset because they hadn't been properly briefed and because they didn't like change. Now, change is often considered, as I said, unwelcome and can give rise to resistance. The EAT recognised this. And they said that the protection for people who carry out designated uh, activities would be wholly undermined if the employer could try and disassociate that upset from the actual carrying out of their activities. And the EAT said, no, no, it's one and the same thing. Now, if Mr. Sinclair had conducted himself unreasonably, maliciously, or had gone outside of his remit, then that would have been something different. But he carried out his health and safety activities completely and utterly within his remit. And the fact that it caused upset in those circumstances is just one of those things that the employer should have dealt with. In fact, it could have avoided that by speaking with his staff and consulting with the staff in advance. And in these circumstances, Mr. Sinclair had indeed been um, automatically unfairly dismissed. So in these circumstances, you know, what's clear is that employers need to have in place proper measures to protect those who carry out health and safety activities. And where you are potentially going to be making proposals for change, Consult with staff who are going to be affected in advance. Involve them in the risk assessments. And make sure that you communicate, you know, the changes or the proposals effectively. I'm not saying anything new here. This applies to everything, including, you know, how, you know the changes that are being put in place because of, you know, COVID, uh, you know, security in the workplace. Hopefully by doing all of this, upset can be minimised. And if you ever did need to terminate someone who had been tasked with designated health and safety activities, the fact that you had consulted with staff and done everything that you should have done, hopefully should therefore minimise the risk, should mitigate that risk of when you sack that individual, let's say you sack them for gross misconduct, but they allege that it was all connected with their health and safety activities. You can try and say, no, we can in this situation dissociated. The way in which he behaved was completely outside his, his remit. And the reactions of people, those reactions should never have happened in the circumstances because they were aware, wholly aware of what his remit was and he went outside. When I'm talking about health and safety, I just want to mention um, a change in the law that happened on the 31st of May uh, 2021. And what happened uh, here is uh, there was an extension of protection for health and safety related uh, activities um, to workers, because up until that point, certain health and safety protection only applied to employees. Now, there are certain rights that employees had now extended to workers um, where uh, 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 an employee, now a worker, 
is um, subjected to a detriment because of their absence or proposed absence from work due to a reasonable belief that their attendance at work would put them in serious and imminent danger. And also in circumstances where they were taking or proposing to, to take appropriate steps to protect themselves or others in the reasonable belief that there is a serious and imminent danger. Now, it was found that our law breached European law in this regard because it only protected employees, didn't protect uh, workers. That hole has now been filled. Um, and as of the 31st of uh, May this year, workers now do have the same protection as employees. Now, employees can also claim that they've been automatically unfairly dismissed, as we just had a case in relation to uh, health and safety uh, activities. Workers, of course, aren't employees. They can't complain about unfair dismissal. However, if their engagement is terminated, they can allow, allege that the termination of that engagement amounts to a detriment. So essentially, although they can't claim unfair dismissal, they do in fact have a similar protection in relation to the termination of their contract. Coming on to my final case for today, this was this is actually only, only a tribunal case in the employment tribunal, so it's not binding on other tribunals, but I think it's quite an important example of, um, of health and, uh, of individuals um, who complain about health and safety in the workplace and how they aren't uh, always going to be successful in uh, claiming automatic unfair dismissal. In this particular case, we had um, A, who was employed as a sales and project marketing coordinator. And you can see employed on the 8th of May, 2018. Very important date, bear that in mind as we come to the date that he was sacked. Now, his employer described him in the tribunal as a very challenging employee who made a series of ongoing complaints over many months concerning the general working environment. But at the same time, when he wasn't complaining, was a very good employee in relation to his performance. Now, like with many businesses, when um, we first went into lockdown in March, April 2020, this employer was particularly affected. However, for, for them, because they were in the business of distributing personal protective equipment, they suddenly became extremely busy. They needed all hands on deck. And they sent, because they needed staff in, in, in the workplace, they were obviously very, very keen to make sure that uh, the place was COVID secure. They sent many emails to staff related to health and safety, and they followed government guidance to the team. But they appreciated that some individuals wouldn't want to work, even though they needed them. They appreciated that some wouldn't want to come into the workplace, whether that be because of the commute or personal reasons. And so they said, if you don't want to come into work, you can take holiday or unpaid leave. So paid holiday or unpaid leave, it's up to you. We need you, but we're not gonna force you to come. Now, this particular individual traveled into work by bus and he went home on the 30th of March, 2020 due to COVID symptoms and he had to self isolate. He submitted three isolation notes, which expired on the 18th of, El uh, uh, of April. But thereafter, he went to his doctor because he still had a cough. I thought that was one of the COVID symptoms, but here we go. Perhaps it wasn't a, a continuous uh, new cough. Um, so he had a cough and that he had a fit note there, which lasted until the 24th of April. In the meantime, in those few weeks, he asked four times between the 15th and the 21st of April to either work from home or be furloughed. Now, his employer looked very carefully at the furlough uh, rules and said, sorry, you can't be furloughed because your work still very much exists. And if you're fit enough to work, 
so obviously that would be the case after his fit note expires, if you're fit enough to work, then we need you in the workplace to do your job, and therefore we can't furlough you. And because we need you in the workplace to do your job, you can't work from home either. So, in this situation, they got fed up with him. He just went on and on and on, so they sacked him. 20 minutes after they got his final request, and they did it with immediate effect, plus a pylon, due to his general ongoing failure on your part over a period of many months to support and comply fully with our company policies and guidelines. I have a feeling that they were going to dismiss him even before they received his final email because the letter wasn't something that had literally just been drafted, you know, instantly on, on the back of that last email. So they clearly were planning to do it. They were fed up with him. Now, he alleged that he'd been automatically unfairly dismissed for having taken steps to protect himself from danger, which is one of those... Uh, reasons that I just told you has just been extended from employees to workers. But he, he was an employee anyway. So the tribunal said, yeah, the government had specifically said that COVID had posed a serious and imminent threat to public health. So yes, we understand how, you know, there are potentially circumstances of danger here. And yes, we understand that, you know, uh, Mr. A, reasonably believed this to be the case, both in respect of commuting on public transport, which he had to do, and in relation to attending the office. However, in order to have the protection of this, he had to take appropriate steps to protect himself from danger. That wasn't the case here. He hadn't done that. He simply wanted either to work from home or to be on furlough, in other words, to be paid to stay at home. Surely just removing yourself from the workplace is enough. And so they said, your claim fails. The tribunal said it was completely reasonable for the employer to decide that he, this individual couldn't, his job couldn't be done from home. It was also completely reasonable to decide that he didn't qualify to be furloughed. It was also completely reasonable for them to say, look, for those individuals who, even though we need you at work, you don't want to come into work, you can take holiday or unpaid leave. That's, a, no, that's, that's reasonable. What it isn't reasonable for is for the individual to decide off their own back that they're not coming into work and expect to be paid for it. The tribunal went on to find, and I, this quote speaks volumes, that the reason for this uh, employee's termination was to prevent him achieving two years qualifying service. So if we look back, he was dismissed on the 21st of April, having started on the 8th of uh, May, two years earlier. So in other words, two weeks short or three weeks short of his two years qualifying service. And he was dismissed because he was a difficult and challenging employee who had written impertinent emails demanding to be furloughed or to be allowed to work from home. So what this shows you is there are some circumstances where even though an individual does complain about health and safety, where the employer has done everything they can to ensure that the workplace is COVID secure, and where the, where the individual is asking for things that are unreasonable, the individual won't be able to successfully claim that they've been automatically unfairly dismissed for health and safety reasons. The final thing that I want to mention is just right to work checks. Um, the first thing is just to let you know that uh, following the, ex the, uh, the extension of the decision not to relax the, the uh, COVID restrictions, 
uh, the end date for relaxed checks has been extended from the 20th of June, the day before the relaxation was due to be lifted, to the 31st of August. Interestingly, not the, the 17th of, sorry, the 19th of, uh, of July, but the 31st of August. This permits, as you may know, digital checks over video with uh, follow-up photo or scanned copies. Um, while well, social distancing restrictions are in place, and there is no retrospective requirement to check original documents. So that's great. That will continue now until the end of August. Uh, I've got a few things on my slide here relating to um, EU and EEA uh, nationals. This is just in relation, obviously, to Brexit, um, where um, rights in relation to those nationals. There was a six-month grace period. That expires on the 30th of, of June. Where you're recruiting individuals from the 1st of July, from that uh, time onwards, the right to work must be uh, verified in a different way. Uh, copies of these slides will be available um, after the event. That being the case, that, that, that's me over. Um, so uh, on, to, uh, on to questions. Simon. Hello, hello. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, that was fantastic and um, lots to digest for everyone, I'm sure. Now, I have to admit, these are a quiet bunch. There's been questions around, can we have the slides, which you have already answered. Um, but beyond that, if anyone's got any questions, now is a great time to uh, type them into the Q&A pane at the bottom of the screen. Um, while you do that, I will explain a couple of matters while we're waiting. So one, we will very shortly today send you an email that will ask for some feedback, please. We would love your feedback. We would also love you to fill in these forms because it enables us to keep contacting you about these events and inviting you. So please do pop your details on those forms and return them to Rachel Alexander Lloyd. Um, we have also recorded the webinar. So we will send you a link next week after we've set up a little microsite, which will, again will have the slides and the recorded webinar available. Um, and you'll be able to find that on the Alexander Lloyd YouTube channel. Um, I think Andrew puts it on the Synchrony Law site with a link to that place too. So we are gettable. Right, I do have a question. Um, yes, I can to answer that question. Can we send the slides? Yes, we can. Um, but beyond that, here we go. Right, the final case, Andrew. Does that mean that the individual was unfairly dismissed or did the employer do the right thing? Um, no, uh, in that final case, his claim was dismissed. He was not unfairly uh, dismissed because um, basically he hadn't uh, done everything that was necessary um, in order to prove, his, to prove his case. He would have needed to have shown that what uh, the company was doing was basically not reasonable, but they, you know, he wanted to remove himself from the workplace because he didn't want to get COVID. The employer has said, it's absolutely fine for you to remove yourself from the workplace. We need you in, but you can. You can either take holiday or you can take unpaid leave. The trouble was he wanted to be paid for that and he had no right to be paid for that. So what he was wanting went further. And so it was completely okay for them to dismiss him in those circumstances. Now, if it had been a straightforward unfair dismissal claim, clearly they followed no fair procedure, and so they would have been lumbered with an unfair dismissal. Um, you know, it, it would be unfair. But he didn't yet have ordinary unfair dismissal rights, so he couldn't rely upon that. He had to specifically try and get his claim into the legislation relating to health and safety, and he didn't manage to do it. So what I'm saying is you, there is leeway there to dismiss people before they get their two years uh, service because they don't then uh, have the ordinary right to claim unfair dismissal but you've got to watch out for claims for automatic unfair dismissal and obviously discrimination as well thank you andrew um going back to the surveillance point in the first case um why was it considered sackable for keeping an eye on one's workplace computer uh, that's the point. Uh, it was found that was uh, held upheld as being an unfair dismissal. That particular allegation, um, his uh, his his uh, his camera was on his uh, computer only. Um, 
the relationship had broken down. He was trying to work out whether anyone was going to access his personal information. No one actually got caught by the camera because no one, no one did. And in those circumstances, um, the tribunal's decision that uh, it was an unfair dismissal for that reason was upheld. Thank you. And lastly, just relating back to the previous question, sorry, tag team. Um, so the tribunal didn't consider the date for dismissal was to avoid the two years. If that makes sense. If we're talking about the very last case, yes, the tribunal specifically said the reason for dismissing him then was to stop him getting two year service. That, that the quote that you see in the slide is the tribunal is a quote from the tribunal's judgment. They acknowledge that he, they dismissed him deliberately to, st um, to stop him getting unfair dismissal rights two to three weeks later. And they said, fine, you can do that. The law only gives people ordinary unfair dismissal rights after two years. If you want to sack someone before that, that's absolutely fine, provided that you don't do it for health and safety uh, reasons. And they decided this wasn't for health and safety reasons. And obviously, you don't want to just be discriminating against someone. Thank you for clarifying. And thank you all for coming. It's, it's been, I'd like to say it's been a pleasure to see you all. I mean, obviously, I haven't seen any of you. But I get, you know, it's been lovely to spend some time together virtually. Um, obviously, we'll keep running these. We've got a, a long-standing relationship and partnership with Andrew. So thank you very much for your time, Andrew. You've obviously done all the heavy lifting today. Um, if anyone wants to get in touch with Andrew, I imagine you're imminently findable on, on LinkedIn and you have the website, etc. Yeah, just, just go to the Synchrony Law website. All my details are there. And when the slides um, go up, you'll find my details there as well. Excellent. And equally, if you need me, need me, I'm sure by now you know where to find me. <laughs> Have a wonderful rest of the week and weekend, everyone. Thank you for joining us and uh, we'll see you all soon. Thanks very much.